scripture reading for today comes from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, and it can be found on page 6 of your bulletins. Spiritual blessings in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great reading. Let's uh, pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this glorious morning, great time of year to enjoy the outside and your creation and uh, each other. Thank you for your word that speaks to us. You're not silent. You declare to us so much in regards to who you are and what you expect from us, your people. And I pray that this morning as we take a little bit deeper look into this passage that has been read that's before us, that your Holy Spirit would work within all of our lives, that you would help me uh, as I try to explain and uh, preach this passage. I pray that uh, I would not get in the way. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in all of our lives in regards to how it might be applied in a way that would bring you glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're wondering, that is if you're new, no, I'm not Duke. Uh, Duke does not look anything like me, by the way. And uh, so for you who um, are normally here on worship, you know that Duke and Paula and their family are away on vacation for a couple of weeks. So I was asked to be part of the preaching medley. And uh, so you'll have different ones that will be filling the pulpit in his absence. Some time ago, actually it was quite a long time ago, I was invited to a, an occasion, it was a banquet, and uh, as most banquets, you have a special speaker, and um, I didn't even pay attention to who the speaker was. All I know was a friend of mine had met me in the parking and I said, hey, I want to introduce you to a good friend of mine, and it happened to be the, the main speaker. And so 
I went into the lobby of this Marriott. Uh, it was an event probably attended by some 700 or more people. And he introduced me to his friend. And uh, when, when he did so, I thought, well, I need to be, you know, uh, kind and engaging, and I need to show an interest in this friend. And so the only problem was when he introduced me to the friend, his name was Steve Largen. Now, most of you probably today don't even know that name. In fact, I, I'm surprised. But Steve Largen had just retired from the uh, Washington Seattle Seahawks. So he was a pro football player, not just a pro, but he ended up being in the Hall of Fame, he ended up uh, being in Congress, et cetera. In other words, he was a really well-known guy. And the only thing that I could think of when I was introduced to him was to ask him, well, Steve, what is it that you do, right? <laughs> and so my friend is sitting there or standing there and other people are like, they're like, well, is this a joke? Like, you don't know who to whom you're speaking? You don't know that this is one of the great football players within the world? And, you know, the list goes on and on. And the truth is, I, I didn't. Now, that was pretty embarrassing. And I must admit, when my son, who loves football, heard about the occasion, he was not terribly impressed with his father's ignorance in regards to <laughs> these type of things. So I've kind of lived with that for a long time. But I share that because I tend to think that maybe for some of us, to some degree, maybe greater or less, are we not that way when it comes to God? That is that we, uh, in some form, have been introduced to God, but in regards to really knowing God and really appreciating who he is and all of his attributes, all of his character, all of his ways, that yeah, it's a little bit like Chuck Garriott when he meets Steve Large and we're not really totally in sync with who God is. And I would say that for me personally, the older I am in Christ, and having come to Christ way back in high school, and that was a long time ago, that I'm still learning some important truths about who he is. I think this series that Duke uh, Pastor has led us in and has developed in regards to the character of God, the attributes of God, is an incredibly important series for us to be in because it helps us sit back and say, you know, I hadn't really thought much about God's omniscience and omnipresence and what Psalm 139 has to teach us and many of the other things that are coming out within this series. A good book, if you haven't ever read it, that would help you in regards to getting to know God is by J.I. Packer, uh, Knowing God, and it's a great, great study. So if, you, if you're looking for something of that nature, it would be uh, something I would advise. When it comes to the passage in front of us today, we are introduced, if we haven't thought about it, to the topic of the sovereignty of God. It is a challenge, I think, for all of us to consider what the scriptures teach in terms of, of God's rule and sovereignty. I, I think that if you haven't thought about it that much, it may challenge you in regards to your view of self and the world. And certainly, it will challenge you, I think, and it will help you in regards to things like prayer, your witness within the world in which you live and the way in which you look at your events uh, that unfold from week to week and month to month. Louis Burkhoff, who is a theologian, says this about the sovereignty of God. He says, the sovereignty of God is a strongly emphasized uh, passage in scripture, it are, are represented in scripture, 
it is represented as the creator. He is an, uh, the, the one who is the cause of all things in virtue of his creative work. Heaven and earth and all that they contain belong to him. He is in charge of all of it. Now, I tend to think that many of us believe to some degree and in some form of what I refer to today as the sovereignty of God. It's not a totally new concept to us. We hear about it in prayer. We've maybe read about it on occasion. But what does it actually mean? David in Chronicles 1, 1 Chronicles uh, 1, or I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, uh, who was preparing the people in Israel for the building of the temple, which he would not be building, but his son Solomon would build. And it wouldn't be done until after his death. And in preparing for that, he gathers the people of God and he asks them to contribute to this incredible building program that will take place. And in response to what they have done and what he is expecting, he provides this, what I will give, a, a dissertation, a small dissertation in regards to his view of God. And he says this in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and you are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things and in your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. I think that's a great representation of what the scriptures teach when it comes to the complete and sovereign rule of God. The Westminster Confession, which was written, this ancient document back in the 1640s, puts it this way. God from all eternity did, and by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. Now, I'm not ignorant of the fact that uh, this is a pretty, pretty significant challenge to us if we haven't, again, thought about what the scriptures mean when it speaks about the sovereignty of God. So as a means of understanding this a little bit better, and I would say that for this morning's purpose, I'm going to be fairly general. Uh, I'm going to allow as much as I can the passage to speak to us in regards to the context of what the Bible refers to when we think about God's sovereignty. And so as you think about the passage here in Ephesians, you should first of all think about it in, in the context of the whole book. It's six chapters. Uh, Ephesians was written by Paul. It is a book that was often passed around to many within the known world, that is Christians. It went from church to church. In fact, some argue the fact that maybe it wasn't to this particular church only, but to the churches in general. But certainly, as you think about the epistle, you'll recall that it is, in a very short form, a help to us in regards to the wealth, that is, understanding the wealth we have in Christ, the first three chapters, and then the second three chapters, chapters four, five, and six, deal with the application of this spiritual wealth that we have in Christ. And so we're 
told about the, the application, so to speak, of our spiritual wealth, meaning that when we think about the body of Christ, this is how we should view it. This is how we should act. When we think about the family, marriage, between a man and a woman, that this is how you should be married. And as you think about marriage, you're going to think about it relative to the body of Christ, relative to God's relationship with his church. It's going to teach us about children, teach us about even the workplace and spiritual warfare. All those things are wrapped up. But as he begins, he wants you to think about this one particular dynamic in regards to the spiritual wealth that you have in Christ, meaning this, that for those who have come to a point in their lives where they recognize their sin and their need for Christ, and in repentance and faith, they have surrendered their lives to Christ, this doctrine is a key aspect of understanding this God to whom you worship. When we talk about things like predestination, pre meaning before time and destiny in terms of the place that we are going or the direction, it raises all kinds of interesting questions. Why should I even think about prayer or anything if God has already determined that these things are going to take place? Why, why would I care about the way in which I live my life if it's already determined that which is going to happen? If a loving God is truly sovereign, how can there be so much suffering and pain and, and difficulty that we experience within the world and life? And do those who believe in the sovereignty of God believe that God is the author of sin? And the list goes on and on and on. It's interesting if you think back on history, the last 2,000 years, and you see the controversy that this doctrine has surfaced between people like George Whitfield the great evangelists, and John Wesley, uh, the great uh, evangelists as well. And you can read in Dalimore's two-volume work on Whitfield, which describes this controversy, at least in part. And it's interesting, when you read this one letter, Whitfield writes to Wesley, and he says that, my dear brother, I thank you for yours, that is, to, to his letter. The case is quite plain. There are bigots both for predestination and against it. God is sending a message to those on either side. And he continues on and he says to this brother that he dearly loves, look, we're on either side of the issue. But we know that at the end, God is going to resolve the questions that maybe we're not able to answer. So this morning, as we go back to the passage that we've read, uh, I want us to see just two things in a very brief period of time that might help you understand, at least in part, this concept of the sovereignty of God, and especially when it comes to predestination. The first is this, that as you look at the passage, if you just take a quick review of it, you'll see that it accents two different sides of the equation. On the one side, it accents the what I'll call the unseen. That is, when you think about the sovereign rule of God over every area of life, over everything that takes place, over every atom, every molecule, everything. So that when Paul says what he does, that 
in him we were also chosen, in verse 11, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So that if that's true, that means the course of history, the things that unfold from day to day to day, are happening according to his will and plan, and not according to random circumstances or things that I make. He is speaking about the things that are, for the most part, unseen, right? Do you ever get up in the morning, read your email, and read, oh, this is what's going to happen today. Oh, now I know. Well, I don't have to get out of bed, right? I don't have to go to work today. No, we, none of us know. It's all unseen. You simply cannot see it. He speaks about a number of things that are unseen. For example, he speaks about this concept of adoption. Now, when you came to Christ, did you say to yourself, you know what I really want? I want to be adopted. That's really what I'm longing for. I can't wait till I can be adopted by God. I doubt if anybody even thought about the concept of adoption in recognizing their sin. When you think about uh, adoption, and uh, recently I was reminded about the adoption that some of you have participated in, and all of us have maybe different stories in that regards. I was on the Hill, and we were in the Kennedy Caucus Room, which is in the, in the Senate Russell Building, and there was this, uh, we were having a, a prayer breakfast, actually, and a number of the participants were talking about their own experience when it came to adoption. And this one, uh, family. Uh, the, the husband is a uh, staffer on the house side, and they live there in Anacostia. They have, I think, three adopted children. They're a white family with a number of African-American children, and they were there. And so as the father was speaking about adoption and the significance of it within his life and his family's life, his wife and their kids were running around and making all kinds of noise, and it was a beautiful example of of a father who uh, has just, who loves his children, even though biologically they're not his own kids. And you think about the circumstances of, of, for those who are adopted. I mean, I don't know, are there, are there any favorable circumstances that bring someone to a point where they need to be adopted? May, maybe there are, but in most cases, they're, they're sad circumstances. A parent dies, or a parent comes to the conclusion by whatever circumstances, that they cannot take care of their own children. And that child, for whatever reason, is at a point where they realize that I don't have my, my, my mom or my dad. I don't have the family that otherwise I could have had. And again, God does all kinds of incredible things under those circumstances. But isn't it remarkable, if you think about it, that when God thinks about, and as he engineers his relationship with his people, with his, with his children, that he wants you to think about the fact that you were, in essence, alone and unloved and uncared for, and, un and you didn't have the provision that you needed. And God, through his grace in Christ, has brought you into his family. And you now have all the rights and the privileges of what it means to be called a daughter or a son of the living God. I don't think we have even an ounce of understanding of what that really, really means. 
Parables like the prodigal son and others help us understand that. I noticed that when I was reading through some of the, the uh, commentaries on this, that a number of the, of the writers said, in that day when Paul was writing, people may have thought about the Roman version of adoption. But then they go on and they say, but the Roman version of adoption did not add one iota, one bit to the understanding of our adoption in Christ. And I tend to think that even it's true today, we have some glimpse of what it means. It's unseen, right? You only know about adoption because God has revealed it through his word. That's the only way that I know about it. Secondly, he talks about redemption. Redemption is a term that is applied to the release of those who are prisoners by paying a ransom. Somebody has to recognize that you're in trouble. Somebody has to own the fact that you are a captive. Maybe it's by war. Maybe it's by debt. I think maybe a lot of us today feel like we're captives when we think about our debt, right? Even, you know, and it, like, doesn't seem to ever go away. It just increases at times, right? And it just becomes greater and greater. We would love someone to free us from that kind of captivity. That's not what Paul is speaking about. He's speaking about the captivity that is ours because of our sin, because of our offense to God, the fact that, that I have by my thoughts and by my words and by my actions, I have terribly offended God. I think Steve Largent was actually offended when I asked him what he does, right? I think I, he didn't say it, and he didn't even act that way. I, I have met him, however, a number of times when he was in Congress, since he's been in Congress, et cetera. He doesn't ever seem to know me, right? And I, I wonder, I think, I think he's just getting back, you know, the fact that uh, I treated him so ignorantly, you know, and, and wrong. But what does it mean for us to know that we offended God? See, I, I think that's part of the issue, even when it comes to doctrines like this in Ephesians, that if we really understood the weight of our sin. Paul Bunyan picture, so to speak, a burden that is nagging at you, that is nipping at your heels, that when you wake up, that's what you think about. When you go to bed, that's what you think about. That you cannot get away from this, this incredible burden. It haunts you. If we, if, we, if we really understood it, I think that would be true for us. I think by, in a sense, by God's common grace, we're protected a little bit from the actual weight of our sin, if we can really see it. But being dead in our transgressions and sin, as Ephesians 2 speaks about, we, we are somewhat blinded by it. But when you begin to wake up spiritually and God's spirit is working in your heart, one of the things that you're going to see is that, you know what, I, there is something wrong in my life. There, I, it's not right. It, there's, it, it doesn't work for me anymore. And that is the spirit of God, as Paul speaks about here, working in your heart, and it's beginning to transform it. And it's only then that you get even a glimpse of your sin and your offense to God. And if we were to have the full load 
of what you could see there, I don't think we could, I don't think we could survive. But when you do see it, even at a glimpse, you want freedom and you need a savior. You need a redeemer, someone who will come and will pay the price to set you free. And so Paul speaks about those two things that, again, I don't really believe that we can possibly understand or see or even know. They are hidden from us. And until the scriptures reveal them to us, we, we can't see. And I, I say that because I, I think that when you look at the context of what Paul is speaking here, is that what the first thing that you notice is that he doesn't really spend a lot of time describing or explaining predestination or election or being chosen, et cetera. He does it. But he speaks about it a number of times here. It's just simply assumed. But it is being revealed to us. And in a way, in a way, God has taken us in a in a room, so to speak, or in another dimension. And he's saying, I want you to know that my love for you is so great that before the foundations of the world, I chose you to be my own. And your sin was so incredibly offensive to me that the just thing would have been for me never to have looked upon you again, looked at you again in any way, shape, or form. But because of my love, Paul says, this is what I've done. Now, the second side of the equation here deals with the issue of that which we can see, right? And Paul speaks about the scene. He speaks about the scene in regards to verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard. Notice what he says, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with the seal of the promise Holy Spirit, the point is this. I may not know and cannot know so much about the spiritual realm, about this dimension that exists that is a part of reality, but I can't know about it. But I can know when I'm hearing something and it resonates with me. I, I can know when in my heart I say to myself, that is true. That's true for me. I may not be able to understand every aspect, all the nuances, et cetera, but I, it resonates with me. And that's the spirit working, and that I can experience with my senses. And so Paul speaks about that. Now, it's not unusual for the Bible to marry these two things together that even though they may not seem to fit. So, for example, in Acts 13, Paul says, or I'm sorry, uh, Luke who is the writer, says this, when the Gentiles heard this, speaking about this, this one incident, he says, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. You see how he just, in one little verse, he just marries those two together, like no big deal. Two things that seem to be contradictory, that don't seem to make sense to put together. You mean those who who believed something else was happening behind the scenes that was unseen? And his answer is, yeah. That's what scriptures teach about God's sovereignty, that he is always at work. And those, he said, who believed, believed because they had been appointed. Now, if you go back to Acts 19, you can read about the details of those who heard the word who were under the teaching. 
And you'll see that Paul actually spent, in terms of the church in Ephesus, a long time in that city. He spent the first couple of months preaching in the synagogue. Things happened. He left. Continued for two years. He was preaching in the hall of Tyrannius. For two years, he preached about Christ and the gospel. He did not use this particular book or the gospels. He was always preaching out of the Old Testament, showing again and again Christ, Christ in Isaiah, Christ in the Psalms, Christ in Genesis, Christ in Exodus, and helping these people understand what it meant to trust in Christ. And then you'll see that the culture began to be altered in that city there in Ephesus. And the God and those who worship Artemis, the god the goddess Artemis, were angry at Christians and people like Paul because less and less were going and buying their wares and trusting in Christ. And you see this this cultural revolution within the community. All those things you can see and you can experience. And what Paul wants you to understand is that which you could see and experience in people who were coming to faith, people who were saying, this is true. I hear the word. I can experience that. I can tell you that I believe something is true. I can tell you that it's working on my heart, that I'm wondering, is this applied to me? I can tell you that something is taking place in regards to my thought life that I want, I want to trust in Christ. And then to actually surrender to him. I can tell you about that experience. And Paul wants you to know that there was something else, there was another dimension that was taking place long before that occasion and long before you were ever born. That God, in essence, in every way and in every form, is the author of your salvation. I'm just going to end with two little stories one from Genesis 50. If you look at Genesis 50, it's about Joseph. Joseph is the son of Jacob. Jacob, one of the patriarchs, uh, you know, you recall Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob had 12 kids and number of wives and all kinds of interesting stories. Uh, and this, the account goes on in terms of Joseph. When the spotlight falls on him in chapter 37 of Genesis you see that Joseph is, 13, or is 17 years of age, and he uh, is the favored by his father because he was the daughter, or I'm sorry, he was the son of Rachel, who uh, was Jacob's favorite wife. And you'll recall the is issue with Leah and Rachel, and we won't go into all those details, except to say that at 17, uh, this man is not doing so well in regards to family relationships. And his brothers hate him with a passion. They sell him to a bunch of Ishmaelites, and he's sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. There he works for Potiphar, and the guy continues to live a life of a loser. So he ends up being accused of wanting to sleep with Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into jail. And there, things don't go well for him either. At age 30, 17 now to age 30, he's still in prison. He has no hope at all for being redeemed. And then he has these two guys that tell him the dreams. And a consequence of him explaining their dreams, eventually, 
eventually he's brought before Pharaoh and he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And this guy who was in prison is now placed in the number two position in all of Egypt. It's his responsibility to help them through some very difficult times. By age 40, he's reunited with his family. And his brothers know that his number one agenda, especially now that he's incredibly powerful, is to play havoc in their lives and to get his revenge. They know that that's going to happen. Eventually, their father dies. And they come to Joseph in chapter 50, as it's recorded. And they say to him, hey, look, <laughs> Joseph, before dad died, he said, I want you to tell your brother Joseph that he is to forgive his brothers and treat them well. Now, I think many of us, if those who had offended us to the degree that they had offended Joseph and had made his life miserable to that degree, we would be thinking, you're right, this is my opportunity. Now the dead, now my father is dead, I can strike revenge against these guys and they deserve every bit of it. But this is what he says. His brothers then came and they threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Now notice the guy's theology. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. But then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your family and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. He was able to exercise grace within his life when everyone else would have said, this is the time for revenge. Why? Because he understood that there were things in the present that he could see. He could, he could see and experience the, the incredible offense of his brothers. But he knew that there was a God, a loving, merciful, gracious God who had a much bigger plan. And this was part of it. And yes, they were responsible for their sin. And there was no way around that. And at the same time, Joseph was able to see through all that. And because of his understanding of God's sovereignty, he understood that God's ultimate plan was being worked out. One last. Some of you, uh, and we probably have talked about this before, and I know that Duke has uh, this, this gal who is now about 68, 67 years old by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. And recently she wrote uh, in regards to re uh, reaching her 50th anniversary of her circumstances. Now, so this gal was uh, in, 19, in the summer of 1967, was on her way uh, with her sister to go swimming and was swimming in the Chesapeake Bay, dove in, broke her neck. And uh, since that point in time, so it's now been like 50 years, uh, she has been confined to a wheelchair. She's a, a quadriplegic, meaning that she has very little, if no, actually no real feeling from her shoulders down. And so that means she's being taken care of by other people, and, and she lives a very, very limited life, except that in the midst of those 50 years, she has done incredible things that I could only imagine accomplishing even a little bit, meaning that she received, I think, uh, in, those, in that 50-year period, like eight 
different honorary degrees. She's written 48 books. She has her own radio program. She has this ministry called Johnny and Friends, which she impacts uh, people of, uh, with disabilities, not only within the United States, but all around the world. And the list goes on and on and on. And so on her 50th anniversary of being in a wheelchair, she wrote this. She writes about the memory surrounding the day. She talks about the specifics, meaning that she was scheduled or she had wanted to play tennis with a friend. It didn't work out. And she had nothing to do. Her sister, who had already left to go swimming, returned back to the house because she had forgot her handbag. And she said to Johnny, she said, Johnny, you want to go swimming with us? And Johnny said, Kathy, yes, I would love to go. I'll go with you. And so she jumps back in, or jumps in the back of the Volkswagen and off to the Chesapeake Bay. And then as she's on this little uh, kind of a raft or something, she decides to dive in. She didn't know that it was only three feet of water. And when her head hit the bottom of that Chesapeake Bay, her neck immediately fractured and broke. And that was it. Here's what she says. She says, how was I to know I was driving off, when she uh, driving off for a date with destiny? There were so many what ifs about that day. Like, what if Kathy had remembered her handbag in the first place? I never would have gone swimming. And looking back now, 50 years later, I realized God had orchestrated every event on that fateful day. And maybe it's just why even now, when July 30th rolls around, my niece and I have a conversation who happened to have a birthday that day, and she wants to remember the events, so she always calls her niece and wishes her a happy birthday. I don't know about you. Um, there are all kinds of things in our lives that we probably don't like and wouldn't ever choose to do or be a part of, or maybe we feel like life has really not treated us well, or maybe we're, I don't know, maybe we're doing really well. But ultimately, the question for us, those who have surrendered to Christ, is simply this. Do we see and do we know the God of the Bible in the way in which he has revealed himself in every way, not just in, in certain aspects where he emphasizes his love and his grace and his mercy and how he justifies us and all the other kinds of things, but do we recognize that this God is a God of justice and he is a God of sovereignty and in every sphere of life, he actually rules. We may not be able to put these two together. And there may be all kinds of unanswered questions. But there's a difference between not being able to always satisfactorily answer all the questions and, a, and that which often takes place where we deny maybe the fact that this is the God that we worship. My hope for you is that you will continue your study of the nature and attributes of God, that you would enjoy such a pursuit, that you will know him better and you'll know what that means for your personal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us worship and for giving us your word and for helping us think through many, many different aspects of our lives. Uh, pray that you would enable us to better understand every aspect of your existence, of all that you have revealed to us about who you are and how you function, how you work, 
uh, within the world and within our lives. Thank you especially for the gospel, for Jesus Christ, for his death and his resurrection. In his name we pray. Amen. Everybody, I'd like you to stand. Let's sing this next song.